Our symbols create and reinforce our worldview. They pattern our thoughts and lives, often in ways we are not consciously aware. In order to be delivered from enslavement to our modern worldview grid, we must become familiar with the biblical worldview grid. Learning to see and be patterned by biblical symbols and habits will give us the perspective we need to evaluate our world, acquire wisdom, and begin to think how to reshape the world and make it more pleasing to God. Quite clearly, no society can be shaped on a Christian base without the restoration of symbols. We have to give new direction to our culture, and to do that, we need to revive our symbols. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. What you heard at the beginning of this episode was an excerpt from the end of chapter three of James Jordan's Through New Eyes. And our current Wednesday series on the podcast is with Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers, as they walk through Through New Eyes. In this episode, they will be discussing chapter three on symbolism and worldview. We want to thank all of you who came out to our recent regional course in Unity, Maine on how to sing the Psalms. That course was quite well attended, and it was a great weekend of lecture and instruction in how to chant the Psalter. Please do take a look at those links down there in our show notes. Specifically, check out our YouTube channel, where right now we are in the midst of a series of videos with Peter Lightheart as he walks through his book, Theopolitan Reading. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Through New Eyes, Chapter 3. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing out everything so that it can be broadcast, published out to you, our audience. The last couple episodes, we started a series going through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes. For a number of us, it's been a very formative book in our understanding of Scripture, in our understanding of the world, in our understanding of the church's mission, particularly the church's mission in this in this particular point in history. Jeff Myers was not with us in the first episode when we talked about our first encounters with the book and our first encounters with Jim's work, but Jeff has the, lo- the longest standing relationship with Jim. I met Jim in the early 80s, but I think Jeff's contact with Jim personally goes back earlier than mine, and uh, his contact with Jim's teaching goes back earlier than mine. So Jeff is with us today. I wanted to give you, Jeff, a chance to reminisce about uh, your (laughs) earliest encounters with Jim and his teaching. And um, if you remember what you thought when you first read the book, um, that would be a... a Good. No, no, that's good. This could take the entire episode here, so I need to be careful. The book, of course, was published in 1988, so I didn't read the book until I had already left Tyler. I left Tyler in 87, uh, actually, yeah, 87 to come back to seminary and finish up seminary in St. Louis, but I was there in Tyler for three years teaching school at the Christian school there, and Uh, taking every opportunity to interact with, meet with Jim, and uh, have him kind of mentor me through my theological development. So what happened was, 
1980, I'd left, I was in Augusta, Georgia. I was still in the army and I left dispensationalism after reading some good critiques of dispensationalism, went into a PCA church there in Augusta, Georgia. I had 30 minutes, uh, actually 35 or so to travel on base to Fort Gordon, Georgia, and I would listen to tapes. And uh, I had friends uh, in the new church, in the PCA church, who gave me a folder full of newsletters. Um, and um, a number of them had Jim's early writings in them. Jim hadn't published anything yet by 1980, 1981, but he had all sorts of essays and articles in these newsletters. These are the days before the internet. So um, you got cassette tapes in the mail and you got uh, uh, newsletters delivered, you know, hard copy in your mailbox. Um, And I began to read Jim's stuff and I was uh, reading Van Til. I was reading and listening to John Frame uh, lectures from Westminster. I was preparing to go to seminary when I got out of the army. And then I went to seminary for a year and was not impressed because I think I'd read too much before I went to seminary and I was expecting more. And what happened one day was I got the newsletter from Tyler, Texas, uh, which I would read Jim stuff and Ray Sutton stuff and David Chilton stuff and all that. I got Newsletter, and there was an advertisement for an opening for a school teacher down there. And so I jumped on that, went down there and visited, interviewed, and then started in 1984 down there. And, you know, I feel like that, uh, <laughs> that chapter in Augustine's Confessions, you know, where he's, I can't remember exactly how it goes. I should have looked this up beforehand, where he, he came to Rome, but actually he came to Ambrose. And, you know, I came to Tyler, but I really came to Jim Jordan. And, and I went there for the purpose of getting a theological education. Of course, I was teaching school and it was, it was all great. It was helpful. Um, I was not yet 30. And I was convinced from Jim that I needed to be 30 before I was a pastor. So I just I was preparing. Jim, the, the, the guys that were down there, Gary North was down there. David Chilton was down there. Gary is, Gary was brilliant. He was a genius. He's photographic memory and appreciated him very much. David Chilton had, was his own kind of eccentric genius as well. Uh, but Jim, what attracted me to Jim was his Bible knowledge, even in seminary. And I had some pretty high-powered Old Testament seminary professors at, in seminary my first year before I went to Tyler, but Jim knew his Bible. I had never met anybody who was able to make connections and with everything and ev- everything in the Bible. It was quite amazing. Um, and it's interesting, too, because Jim, <laughs> Jim and I were, were not alike in many ways. I mean, I was, I was an athlete. I was a hunter. I was an outdoorsman. I was football, soccer, baseball, you know, all that kind of thing. Jim never did any of that. <laughs> um, and yet it, it helped, really helped me with an aspect of my development that I, I never, uh, I never thought I needed, but his his music background, his literature background, his knowledge of the Bible, languages, theology, church history, I was always amazed. And so I spent a lot of time with him. He, he directed some of my reading and studying. Now, see, uh, Through New Eyes hadn't been written yet, but he was he was teaching Through New Eyes, basically, in church and Sunday school and other places. A friend of mine, Burke Shade, we would go early in the morning before work, before school, 
and listen to Jim lecture. He needed some students in the classroom while he was recording things, like he recorded his lectures on Zechariah, he recorded his, his lectures at, at home in the Bible on Exodus and other places. And we would sit there and listen and interact with him and ask questions. Um, and again, and that was just beginning of a long time, you know, 40 years almost of, of uh, interaction with Jim. And uh, I just, if there's anything else I appreciate about Jim, if there, I mean, if, if the, the big thing is, his knowledge of the Bible and his his way of weaving everything together and taking everything seriously. In college, I was I returned to the church through the ministry of dispensational guys from Dallas Theological Seminary, and they they loved the Bible and taught me to appreciate the Bible. Of course, it was different, entirely different kind of paradigm, and yet it stuck with me. And so, coming into the reform world initially through systematic theological kind of reasoning and books and, and, you know, all that, that was great, but it was, it was a little dry and it wasn't always all that biblical, not as biblical as I wanted it to be. And so Jim's Bible knowledge, his Bible emphasis, the primacy of the Bible was extremely important to me and um, continued to be, continues to be. Yeah, maybe for the, our younger listeners, you could define a couple of terms. Uh, you mentioned something called cassette tapes. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember these, but I think there are a lot of people, or maybe people listening that don't know what those are. And newsletter. That's, uh, it's kind of like a, a substack on paper. They may need a definition of paper. I don't know. Yeah, paper. Um, <laughs> yeah, those, yeah, those were the old days. Uh, I mean, one of the extensive, uh, this is getting off track, but one of the one of the most extensive Centers for Distribution of Reformed Theology in the 70s and 80s was Mount Olive Tape Library, yep. uh, which was where? In in uh, Mississippi somewhere, right? Yep. Yep. Mississippi. And I would get boxes of tapes from them and they'd be wrapped in like duct tape. It was really odd. You get like 20 or 25 tapes in this big old elongated box and you'd listen to them and then you'd put them back in the box and you'd send them. And there, it was like 10 cents to rent a tape. And so, <laughs> so every week I'm getting new tapes that I'm listening to. And, and some of them had Jim on it, but a lot of it was, was, uh, was Rush Dooney and other people, Douglas Kelly, well, Gary North sometimes too, and Greg Bonson did uh, things on philosophy and theology. And it was the, the early eighties version of podcasts basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think that, uh, if I recall, I don't remember the the gentleman's name who ran the Mount Olive Tape Library, but he was uh, a postman and had um, some kind of portable tape player, or maybe it was in his uh, his postal truck, and he would spend his day making postal deliveries and listening to tapes. And he had the idea of providing this service uh, that was huge, yeah, yeah, hugely important for uh, a couple of decades when cassette tapes was the cutting edge of. Uh, George Calhoun. George Calhoun. Yeah, George Calhoun. That's what it was. Uh, oh. Brian is displaying an old uh, collection of um, <laughs> of Jim's tapes. Which 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 uh, group? Levites and music. Is that a is that a P, is that a BH conference? Probably. Yeah, it's a 2001 BH BH conference on Levites and music. Yeah, yeah. I think the Theopolis owns. A, well, it, most of it has gone with Jim now since he he took his library and. And moved off to Dallas. So, uh, but he's got an, still has an extensive 
collection of tapes. I'm wondering, Jeff, yeah, the book came out a number of years after you had uh, encountered Jim already, but um, any recollection of how the book struck you or maybe, maybe you could describe how you've used the book over the years in your pastoral ministry. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. Well, the book struck me as a, a great uh, compilation of everything I'd heard Jim say uh, and teach and preach when I was there. I mean, it was all now in print and I could, I could give it to people and, and let them read it. The way I've used this is I've had interns over the last 28 years up here in St. Louis, you know, over 50, close to 70, and, and they all had to read it and we would interact with it. And so one of the things that I want to, there's something of a deficit of teaching on, on the Bible, just honestly in, in seminary. I mean, I went to seminary. I thought I was going to learn my Bible. And we spent a lot of time on introductory issues like dating and authorship and defending the Bible against liberals, uh, and then a lot of time on systematic theology and things like that. And I just wanted to know my Bible. I wanted to learn Exodus and Leviticus, and I wanted to learn First and Second Samuel. And the way into that is through Jim's book. It, it will help you with the flow of history and all that. Of course, we're going to get into that. And I've I've also used it with We've we've done a couple of adult Sunday school classes where we've gone through the book and then discussed it. It's a little harder to do. I mean, I don't expect every every parishioner to be able to to wade their way through the book, but it also helps them to have a more kind of systematic presentation, what they're hearing from the pulpit and Sunday school classes when we go through biblical books. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I, you're right. We could uh, we could the two old guys could reminisce for the next uh, for the next thirty or forty minutes and and finish out this episode of the podcast. But one one more thing, Peter. I will tell yeah, you. Sure. I think you've heard this, but others haven't. Jim had this an office in the basement of the church in Texas with all of his books. It was like a labyrinth because he he couldn't just line the walls with them. You had to he had to you know have them in the middle of the room. And so you had this huge library and with a desk. And I would go down there after school all the time, just to bug him. School's over. I'd go down there and bug him. And one day I was down there, I was looking at stuff at his desk. And there was this letter from this guy, uh, Peter Lightheart. And <laughs> it, it also, there was a, uh, um, I think one of your articles on Calvin's Geneva or something that you published in Calcinin or Calcedon, however you pronounce the uh -huh. version. And I was reading it and thinking, I'm like, I'm like, hey, this is pretty good. And Jim says, oh, yeah, it's very good. I said, who is this guy, Peter Lightheart? He's, oh, he's a smart guy. Um, he, we, we're, we're just starting to talk to him. I'm like, so that was my first, that was the first yeah. time I ever heard yeah. or saw your name. <laughs> yeah. And you were filled with envy. And ever, <laughs> ever since then, we've become rivals for the attention, the affection of our, of our master. That's right. It's a perfect, it's a perfect Girardian scenario. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot for that. That's, that's really helpful background filling in. Uh, I, I realize that uh, a, a lot of people are not aware of, uh, I, me I mentioned what was happening in Tyler in the first half of the eighties, the first two thirds of the eighties. And uh, very few people are aware of that and uh, how much that generated. I mean, it was only a handful of years, but it generated a lot of written material, a lot of newsletters, a number of uh, journals, that were pretty significant uh, in my development as a as a theologian and pastor. 
and also I think fed into current movements. They're you know it's kind of running that that work is kind of running along the percolating underground, except for Theopolis. I mean, we're pretty overt about our debt to Jim's work and uh, the work that he began in Tyler. Uh, but I think in other in other respects that that work that he did and the things that he that were produced out of that that community of scholars have percolated kind of invisibly over the last number of decades. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And it's also sad because I've talked to a number of men, professors at seminaries and more prominent pastors in uh, reformed churches who have benefited a great deal from Jim, but never cite him. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that has to do just with the uh, mischaracterization of what was actually happening in Tyler at the time, uh, as if it was some sort of uh, insurrectionist movement, to use a common word today, yeah. or something like that. It wasn't. It was. It was. It was all about the reformation of the church. I mean, Jim, if I've got my dates right, uh, there was there was a series of reconstructionist books and edited by Gary North, but one edited by Jim called the Reconstruction of the Church. I think it was like eighty five. Mm-hmm. Was while I was there, and it was, and that that really pretty much defined. Uh, the Tyler movement and the biblical horizons movement as being church centered. I mean, if we're going to change culture, you're going to have to change the church and you have to learn your Bible and sing your Bible and pray your Bible and (laughs) preach your Bible and, and have that be the, the flywheel that turns the rest of culture. Yeah. Well, I think there were some insurrectionists in Tyler, but they weren't the leaders of the, uh, of the church or the uh, other organizations there. Yeah, there's there's some truth to that. Um, there, in any movement like that, there's going to be guys that are not as balanced. Yeah, uh, but they were eventually kind of they were moved out uh, of the influential circles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a at least a master's degree, maybe a PhD for some enterprising American church historian to investigate that. There's there's definitely a paper trail. There's a huge paper trail. Yes. So th- there'd be. Uh, uh, there'd be a lot to a lot to work with, and I think it's a again. I think it's a a more influential period of uh, in and a more influential movement than uh, is appears on the surface. Alistair, I think wants Alistair wanted to jump in here. One more thing related to that: if if anybody <laughs> wants to kind of look at the kind of publishing that Jim did during this time period, you look at what John Barrich has compiled in the back of the Glory of Kings, the Feshrift in honor of Jim, right. And, he he lists all everything that Jim did. It's it's uh, pretty impressive. I'd be curious to hear both of your perspectives on certain of the threads that have continued from the um, from the group in Tyler. So, for instance, in Christian education, in um, eschatology, in biblical theology, liturgy, all these sorts of areas. Where are some of the different places where you see threads of that movement continuing? Well, for me, it, um, I mean, I'm, I'm in the CREC. For those who aren't aware of what that is, Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, that's the church where I'm ordained at presently. And uh, there's a, a, a sizable segment, I don't know if it's a majority of the pastors, who are uh, formed by biblical horizons, biblical interpretation by the liturgical work that came out of uh, Tyler and then Biblical Horizons, um, and so that's that's a I think a significant 
feature within the within the culture of the CREC. And even where um, you know the, the center of the CREC is in Moscow, Idaho, and Doug Wilson's leadership there. And even though Doug doesn't identify so strongly with Jim's work, he he's, he admires Jim, he appreciates Jim. And I think that there's a church-centeredness to the work that is being done in, in Moscow and the the role that worship plays, for example, in the in the culture of the churches there that has, I think, deep roots back in the work in Tyler and then and, and flowering out their biblical horizons. So I think that in my world, it's pretty prominent. What I see in other places is, um, as Jeff was saying, there, there are kind of uh, convergence biblical theological trends. I, we, I think we mentioned uh, Michael Morales last in one of the previous episodes, who I don't think is directly influenced by Jim, but he does some of the same kinds of work that Jim does. And I think it, some of what Jim had done what what was produced out of Tyler just kind of gets out into the atmosphere and people pick it up and, and run with it. So I, I see it influencing the way biblical biblical work is being done these days. Yeah, I could say this too, Jim. Uh, Peter already mentioned this, but one of the things that I encountered down in Tyler was a an experience of liturgical worship that I had not encountered before. I mean, I grew up Lutheran. And so I, you know, I appreciate the Lutheran liturgy, but the way Jim had, uh, way Jim orchestrated that liturgy in Tyler uh, was more energetic, more, more, um, I don't know, more, more engaging, I might say, and also a little more familiar. Um, so it wasn't just so overly formal that you know, you felt out of place if you were just, I don't know how to put this other than say, you know, if you're a common, maybe less educated person, you you were, it was like going into a family, uh, a family, a large family room and um, engaging in rituals that were, uh, that kind of bound you together. Uh, there's lots to say about this, I, but, but I think that way of, of of worshiping liturgical worship has caught on with a lot of people um and you know jim's passion was about liturgy and, and church centered yes but uh worship centered liturgy centered and um you know in my book lord's service I, I say this somewhere i think in the preface or whatever it's it's basically plagiarized jim i'm popularizing jim all through there um and that has had a pretty big influence, not just in the CREC, but also in the PCA in, in many ways. Um, so that there is that. And I think largely Tyler and Jim is responsible for a liturgical movement in uh, Presbyterian circles. When, when, I, when I came into Presbyterian PCA and was ordained in 1988, the big thing in, in the late 80s and early 90s was the seeker-sensitive worship, which is, you know, rock band and, and a Christian TED Talk. Um, we did a series of, of, of um, conferences before the General Assembly, for General Assembly in the PCA. Steve Wilkins was part of that. Um, uh, Jim, Jim spoke of that. Rob Rayburn spoke at it. I spoke at that. We had a series of those, which, and we got a lot of men to those uh, those conferences, those talks, um, and that that that's that's one way that Jim had an influence on uh, on the Presbyterian world. 
Um, also, his 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 uh, his uh, way of, of of theologizing about the sacraments that was also part of that movement. So, mm-hmm. baptism and the Lord's Supper um, that has spread a, and weekly communion. Nobody was doing weekly communion um, when I came into the PCA. Now everybody does it. Um, so that that is that's an enormous impact that he had through through. Um, you know, through his students, through his disciples, through us. Yeah, an area that would be good to discuss, um, particularly as we're going through through new eyes, is the background um, in the thought of Von Till, because it seems that that was one of the real impetuses for um, the movement entirely more generally, for Jim's work, and for the various other threads of thought that developed in that context and continue on. Yeah, I think that's right. And and uh, Jim will make uh, occasional references to Van Til in uh, Through New Eyes, but that w- the references don't a- account for the influence that Van Til and uh, and John Frame also, who's a disciple of Van Til, a student of Van Til, and then a, kind of a revisionist Van Tilian. Uh, those those are definitely in the background, the foundational to Jim's to Jim's work, uh, and even on things that I think don't readily connect. With uh, Van Til, I mean, Van Til wrote in a in kind of a a, a, a very philosophical kind of idiom. Um, he um, and a particular a particular kind of philosophical idiom that was that was uh, uh, the context for his philosophical training. So uh, Jim doesn't Jim doesn't write like that. He's doing Bible stuff that Van Til really didn't major in. But even when Jim is talking about symbolism, and when he's talking about worldview. Um, when he's attacking, as he does in one of the chapters that we're covering in the next couple of weeks, attacks the primacy of the intellect and talks about the equal ultimacy of rational and non-rational elements in human thought and human engagement with the world. Those are all Vantillian themes that are coming through, uh, even though Vantil uh, can't be directly directly cited, perhaps. Uh, can, I, can I just throw one other, I'll just say one other thing very briefly on the influence of Tyler. Uh, Jim and also Ray Sutton wrote essays on Pato Communion. Uh, during their time in Tyler, and uh, those, uh, to my knowledge, those they are the two sources for um, the discussion of Pato Communion that's gone on in all the Reformed churches. I don't. There are some. Uh, there's a a master's a master's uh, thesis on Pato Communion that came out maybe in the 80s or early 90s. Um, a Tim Galant's book, uh, Feed My Lambs. So there've been there've been things that have been written subsequently but as far as i know they were the first to introduce pato communion into the into the uh into uh reformed and uh, into the reformed world yeah that's that's true there was also a westminster theological journal article written uh before jim and peter i mean jim and um, ray wrote their essays but that too that's another that's a great point peter because more and more uh Presbyterian pastors are either ratcheting the age down to the point where uh, it's really kind of a young child pedo communion uh, experience for the children. They'll never remember a time when they weren't at the table. You know, if you're coming at two or three or four, you're certainly not erecting hoops to jump through so that you can achieve the table. Um, And all of that comes from Jim. Uh, especially Jim and Ray, of course, Rob Rayburn as well. But I'm I'm amazed at how many how many guys 
even classical old school Presbyterian churches that have deep roots in uh, the Reformed tradition are going for a much younger age of communion. And that's that's all Jim, uh, definitely. Yeah. Now, I had forgotten the, uh, it, was it Christian Keitel? Is that the author yes. of that article yeah. in, the, in the Westminster Journal back in like 1976 or something? Yes. That was, yeah. you're, you're right. There was a, um, there was a, pr- a prior, um, a prior publication within a reformed setting, but uh, I think, yeah, it was, it was through because title was kind of a hotbed and people were paying attention to it uh, both supportively and also uh, hostile. I mean, there are people, a lot of people that were hostile to what was going on in Tyler as there are to, uh, for example, Moscow today, Uh, but they, it had the same kind of, uh, it was the same kind of, uh, um, uh, it was the same kind of hothouse, uh, and so people were paying attention to that. I think most of the people who have um, uh, have adopted Pico, I mean, you could trace back through Rob Rayburn and through some other writers, but ultimately back to Jim and Ray. Let me let me make one more comment about Alistair's question about Van Til and yeah. and just kind of emphasize something you said, Peter. And that is, yeah, of course, uh, Van Til had this German idealism kind of philosophical background. Jim didn't share that. Jim's Jim's uh, appropriation of Van Til definitely comes through John Frame and Vern Poitras. Um, and, 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 and that, that qualifies a lot of the criticism. And I think some of it's legitimate that comes um, from uh, reform, some reform circles against Van Til. Um, and it's much more, much more biblical. Um, uh, and of course, uh, Van Til himself recognized that he wasn't a biblical exegete. He depended on the work of John Murray and other people. Um, but uh, I, th- I just think it needs to be emphasized that, I mean, if you want to understand Jim's appropriation of Van Til, then read uh, John Frame and his works on Van Til, and you'll you'll see the connections. Yeah, if if I could uh, if I could move on to the to the uh, third chapter of the book, because I think this is a, I've, I found a way to make a segue into the third chapter, which is the, the topic that we want to discuss today. <laughs> um, and I think, I think this is one of the places where you see that uh, frame Poitras influence. Um, I mean, frame and Poitras are all about uh, the developing a theology with per- perspectives, multiple pr- perspectives at the, as the framework, as the, as a kind of method uh, symphonic theology was uh, Vern Poitras's book many years ago that was developing that idea. And everything the frame writes, he's using the tri-perspectival framework in some fashion. Uh, and Jim is kind of doing that here. When, when in chapter three, symbolism and worldview, it's uh, the most sim- systematic thing that he does in the book, where he's talking about symbolism and the different sorts of symbolism, the different the different uh, categories of symbolism. But I think the the you see hints of that triperspectival outlook at a couple of points, but before we get into that, I did want to. I, I think the just as a, a opening to the discussion of symbolism, a couple of things that I think are going on with Jim's defense of symbolism. One is the kind of instinctual, maybe evangelical, but in, maybe instinctively modern idea that uh, what we want to d- deal with is hard reality. We we're not concerned about symbolism. 
we had this bifurcation between, we talked about this in the first couple episodes, this bifurcation between scientifically accessed reality uh, and then the kind of subjective, the subjective realm of, of art and, um, and imagination. And Jim is foundationally challenging that, partly by talking about symbolism, not as something that's a layer on top of some underlying reality, but rather as the primary reality. Things are basically symbolic. And so part of the part of the chapter is laying out kind of a systematic way of thinking about it's a brief systematic way of thinking about how uh, symbols are the basic constituents of, of of reality and not just a layer on top of. The other thing he's getting at is the way that the Bible speaks and uh, the fact that the Bible doesn't speak in scientific terms. It doesn't speak in strict mathematical kinds of terms. It has a lot of numbers in it, but it's not uh, those, even the numbers as uh, James and Alistair are, are, uh, are going to teach us in a, in a, in a future book, in a future uh, uh, Theopolis workshop, even the numbers have symbolic and theological values. So they're not, they aren't using numbers in the way that we use them. Most of scripture is not being written in a kind of philosophical idiom. Uh, rather, we're seeing stories and narratives and proverbs and parables, uh, symbols, poetry, psalms. Uh, much of the much of the prophetic literature of the Bible is in po- poetic form, and it has the kind of poetic elusiveness, uh, the kind of elusiveness that poetry has. So, um, I think those those seem to be the two things that are central to the to the chapter uh, that is a kind of philosophical understanding of the centrality and the primacy of symbolism and then also linked to that the idea that the, the scriptures themselves are written in this kind of symbolic language yeah peter maybe i could pull out a particular quote where jim says something along those lines um where is it uh he's talking about it's just the general tendency in the western world and he writes this he says wherever we find imagery parable, symbolism, typology, we feel we ought to translate such language into proper abstractions. And that feels very much to me to pick up on, on the way we do often do things. And it feels to me that when we, when we make that kind of translation, we do get a correct application of what the Bible might be saying, like one, one application of what the Bible wants to tell us in a particular uh, context, but at the same time, we just lose all its um, more general applications and we lose whole layers and dimensions of what else it might want to tell us when we um, kind of translate in, uh, in, in the way that Jim's um, talking about there. Yes, and sometimes hidden behind that methodology is the idea that somehow the Bible is defective because it gives us truth, but there's all this other stuff. And if we could just push aside the other stuff and get at the core ideas, the core propositions, the core definitions, the, and and state things in, in proper, like you quoted from Jim James, proper philosophical kind of language, then we'll have some kind of deeper truth. Whereas Jim is arguing, no, uh, the deep truth comes as much from the images, the uh, the stories, the narratives, um, the evocative uh, sorts of parables and other things. That it comes as much from that as it does from abstract philosophizing, uh, the poems and and 
are, are, are not to be deconstructed into, you know, some, some sort of arrangement that would be more proper or better for us. And, and like you say, James, I think there's a use for a systematic theologies that kind of do that. You know, what does the whole Bible say about a particular subject? Okay, we, we can do that. But we shouldn't mistake whatever definitions or whatever propositional theology we come up with as some sort of better expression than the way the Bible has put it. Right. I mean, just to expand on that with a very simple example, Jeff, I mean, suppose we're going through Joel or something and we're talking about like, these locust-like armies. I can say, okay, fine, um, just get locust equals armies and plug that into the book. And in a sense, that's fine. That gives me a historical um, application, interpretation of what's going on. But at the same time, I lose so much. You know, the, the book also wants to tell me about the way in which armies can be symbolised by locusts, the way in which they move, the way in which they consume things and swarm upon things, you know, the way in which the locusts are ultimately dispersed by this wind and driven into the sea and the similarities in which you know, an armies will have a, an army will have a lifetime, and then just be dispersed and and uh, be driven away by the spirit into the sea, and and it just gives me one aspect of reality, and and then kind of collapses the whole thing. Yeah, that's a good example because you also have in that example um, not just the the phenomenon of actual locusts and and the, all that that knot of uh, associations. But it, it takes you back to the uh, to the Exodus with the plague of locusts. It takes you forward to Revelation with uh, the what I what I call the locorpions that are locust scorpions that are coming up out of the abyss. So uh, you lose all of the all of the interconnectedness and web of uh, scripture. I think one of the things that we get at when we're looking at sim symbol is just the character of language as something far richer than just a bearer of propositions. And we can see this in many respects. So, for instance, when we make a statement, this act of making the statement itself is doing something. And so remaining silent and speaking are different. Um, the act of declaring a proposition can be an action considered in itself, not just the content, but saying a particular thing at a particular time to a particular person while not saying other things. Um, that's a communica communicative act also. can think about the ways that words don't just convey information. Words can be performances. So if I declare something to be open, um, it is opened by my declaration. Or if there is this performance of a baptismal rite, it's not just a series of propositions it's an action that changes things. Or we can think about the way in which a couple taking marriage vows, as they come outside of the church, they are different from when they first went in. So words aren't just um, bearers of propositions, truth statements. And words can also evoke worlds. And so even in the most basic scientific statement, the scientific statement evokes a world that surrounds it, the world of scientific exploration. So if I'm making a statement about some biological feature of um, some obscure environment in the rainforest, I'm evoking a world 
where people understand what I'm talking about, the sort of world of academic papers and um, research in the field, these sorts of things. So words have a sort of epiphanic character. They evoke a world. And when we're reading through scripture, we see this all the time. And this can be often seen in the connotations that certain words have. So it's possible to use, to refer to the same thing in ways that evoke all sorts of different connotations. So you can talk about the same creature using the language of um, pet or dog or doggo or canine or um, all sorts of other forms of language that evoke different words. So if you talk about canine, it seems more scientific. If you talk about a doggo, it's a cute picture on the internet. If you talk about your pet as buster or something like that, it evokes something different. And language is always working that way. And in scripture, especially so, there is a, a freightedness and a ladenness to language that we can often miss when we're looking purely for propositional things. And then going even further than that, language can be a mediator of identity. When, for instance, um, you hear a word of your language when you're in a foreign country where hardly anyone speaks your language, that one snatch of your language upon the air evokes the whole world that you share with that person, that you don't share with other people who are not speaking the same language. And so within the way that the Lord speaks to us, he creates a world through his speech and we are invited into it within worship and elsewhere. And this is one of the reasons why this sense of the richness of biblical and other language naturally leads into a discussion of liturgy because liturgy is the context where that word, those words have their full active performative character and force. And so we're not just reading scripture and saying, okay, we can see here that scripture teaches that we are forgiven. Rather, we're seeing that the Lord has declared us to be forgiven in the absolution. This is an act that we hear as a performance and we see ourselves implicated in that sta statement and in th this statement directly impinges upon us and we hear it and feel it very differently. And so it seems to me that um, this emphasis upon symbol upon the richness of language is just absolutely pivotal for our understanding of all of these other areas. And if we start there and get that right, so many other things will follow. Yeah, I, thanks, Alistair. I agree with that Agree with that entirely. And just to uh, fit this into the discussion that Jim has in, in this chapter, uh, he dis distinguishes between God's symbols and human symbols. And then he distinguishes uh, in God's symbols between God's primary symbols and then the secondary symbols that come from that. And the word is one of the primary symbols, God's, God's word uh, spoken to people in, in old times now recorded for us in scripture, human beings themselves being the images of God or another uh, special symbol that God uses, and then sacraments or signs. Uh, but when he breaks this down into talking about uh, the human symbols that we derive, uh, it, part, of, part of what he's arguing is that God's symbols are primary, uh, that uh, our words and our language and our speech, certainly in church, but also elsewhere, needs to be shaped and formed by the word of God. Uh, Human beings have to be reformed and repatterned by the perfect human being that is Jesus uh, through His Spirit and so on. So God's symbols uh, reshape our symbols. But when he when he starts talking about human symbols, he talks about language, 
not just as the the general symbolizing and signifying system that we use to communicate with each other. And uh, it's, it's language is the common practice that facilitates all other human common practices. But he, he focuses particularly on the special uses of language that you've highlighted, uh, things like marriage vows, symbolic language like a, a, a church confession, symbolic language like a constitution, which is not just laying out the patterns for choosing leaders and the the the, the uh, responsibility that each of the each of the different uh, 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 talking about the American Constitution of course uh, the U.S. Constitution that each uh, of the branches of government has it's not just laying out that that organizational thing but it becomes a symbol an identifying thing that that we're committed to that we might cite as uh, as a you know this is our aspiration politically might be an aspiration to get back to the Constitution. The Constitution is no longer some functioning simply as a, as a, uh, as a way of laying out uh, a pattern of government, but it's 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 been elevated into this symbolic register. Peter, you mentioned uh, Jim's distinction between God's symbols and man's symbol. Man's symbol is symbolizing activity. I think it's important for this chapter to notice how foundational it is for Jim and for the rest of this book to recognize that the doctrine of creation is foundational, and God is the one who has given us um, a symbolic world to live in. Um, And this is, you know, we mentioned earlier one of the problems with um, the primacy of intellect kind of reform theology is that we want to reduce everything to propositions and to abstract philosophical language, and that that's more accurate, more precise uh, than what the Bible says. But the other issue is what happens, and I've noticed this uh, myself uh, in lots of different contexts, is this idea somehow that God accommodated himself to us in his revelation by using uh, symbols that we made in order to deliver truth that he wanted to communicate to us. So, for example, um, well, the covenant, uh, well, that's just a human construct that of ancient Near East origin, suzerain treaty, suzerain vassal treaty, uh, and God used that in order to communicate truth. Um, rather than uh, recognizing that there's something about the covenant that's uh, that is comes from him and also has to do with um, our relationship to one another uh, as men and women in God's image. I think this is, and maybe the way to put this is the way Jim puts this early on in this chapter, is that the idea that um, the symbolism in the Bible is ultimately arbitrary. It's on unch- on page 30, it is assumed that the symbolism in the Bible is ultimately arbitrary, not grounded in creation design. More liberal commentators assume that the men who wrote the Bible used the man-generated symbolism of their day to express their ideas. More conservative commentators assume that God just decided arbitrarily to use this or that item or to symbolize this or that truth. Um, and this is so important for Jim is, yeah, you, we can learn things from ancient Near East studies, but we but we need to recognize that ancient Near East studies may illumine for us how God has expressed Himself in the Bible, how God has expressed Himself uh, and His will in His creation. But God is not 
using those in an arbitrary, using those kind of categories, symbolisms, symbols, uh, you know, treaties, whatever, in an arbitrary way. And that's not what's going on. What's going on is God has inbuilt into creation this design. And the Bible uses that. The Bible is in sync with that when it expresses, when God expresses his truth using these kinds of symbols. Does that make yeah, sense? Just, oh, yeah. Just to reinforce one point of that, I think that's that's where you have the divergence between uh, what Jim does in this book and his other work and uh, what somebody like John Walton may be doing or Pete Enns, uh, where they're they're trying to get into the mindset of the ancient world. That's that's the premise. Uh, they're trying to think in the cosmological terms of the ancient world, but uh, they don't accept. Uh, they don't have that other that other founding premise that you just identified, which is that behind whatever the ancient world thinks is this world of creation where everything is symbolizing God. Everything reveals God, and uh, as you said, that, that God is an arbitrarily selecting things to. Uh, to enable him to make sense, when he when he speaks of trees being like men, uh, that's because there's this 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 created analogy between uh, trees and men. So that's that's a really important convergence, a uh, divergence rather between uh, what Jim does when a lot of other uh, contemporary scholars are doing in in thinking in terms trying to think in ancient terms. Jim uses that same kind of language, but he means something quite different because of his understanding of creation. Yeah, I was going to make that point. I think that's a great point, Jeff. It, the way I was thinking about it when I was reading through the chapter was if I'm giving a sermon or something, then I might want to illustrate a point and I might think back over the last week and see if there's something that captures that. And really, that's a matter of of luck. You know, the last week's events weren't kind of dictated with my sermon in mind, um, thank God. Um, whereas when things come like... When, when God is revealing himself um, in scripture, he's not kind of looking around the world and seeing if there happens to be some object lying about that will be a helpful illustration. R- rather, that whole created order, God has made deliberately in order to reveal different aspects of his attributes. You know, and, and so there is just this fundamental link between uh, creation and God's own character. And I mean, as it happens, there was someone who I was reading who just quoted a, um, a, a few pages from Calvin this week. And this idea is, is a fundamentally reformed um, idea. There's a passage here in Calvin's Institutes when he's talking about the extent to which creation um, mirrors God. And, and he says, consider one Psalm, you know, Psalm 145, um, uh, in which all the summary of God's qualities are carefully recounted so that nothing is left out. Um, and nevertheless, there is nothing named there um, in that psalm which cannot be found in contemplating the create uh, the creatures, um, the aspects of God's creation. Um, so much does God give himself to be perceived by experience to be the same as he has declared himself to be by his word. And so, yeah, th- this is not some idea that Jim's come up with. It, it's very foundational to Christian thought. Yeah, just to go back to an earlier comment that we were making uh, the, the, about the influence of Van Til on Jim's work. Uh, Van Til and Frame also, John Frame, uh, had uh, reflected on the relationship between 
uh, general revelation or, or revelation in creation or nature and special revelation. And both of them emphasize the inter interconnection between them, the inevitable interconnection between them, uh, which means on the one hand, um, I mean, Frame would put it this way in kind of perspectival terms, you can't have a norm, a scriptural norm, and you can't apply that scriptural norm without knowing something about the context, the uh, situational context to which you want to apply it. So you, you need to know both the biblical norm and creation in order to use use the Bible at all. But on the other hand, it works the other way too. You can't understand what the situation is unless you understand the situation from the perspective of Scripture. So that inter that interwo- interweaving of a created reality and uh, and Scripture uh, is uh, is really uh, that's that's a that is a, a reflection of that Bantillian theme. One question here at the end: Jim calls for a reformation of symbols. Uh, he says, in order to be delivered from enslavement to the modern worldview grid, we must become familiar with the biblical worldview grid. And this was written in 1988, and I'm I'm wondering whether we we'll come back to the be- what we talked about at the beginning of the episode about his influence. I wonder if, if we haven't seen some of this going on. I, I'm I'm surprised at the interest in baptism and the supper and liturgy and uh, Christian art um, and Christian literature. Um, and it seems like, at least in my experience, um, since the late 70s, early 80s, um, as a young, you know, adult believer, that we have seen, I have seen much more interest in this kind of uh, uh, symbolic understanding of the Bible, of life, of the world. And it seems like this is something that not just Jim alone, but um, but Jim contributed to. And it's almost it's it's almost as if the modern world you know gave us modern architecture and modern art and the dryness and the the uh um i don't know how to put it the banality of of it all and the pendulum has kind of swung now and we're a lot of christians are rediscovering the importance of of literature and art not just in the church but in life in general yeah i think there's there's a one dimension of that is there there's a kind of i mean there's a postmodern wave obviously that uh, is attacking modern rationalism. Jim is doing the same, but he's doing it from a very different angle. It's uh, he's doing it from a biblical foundation, from a theological foundation. But I think th- there's some ways in which uh, he's catching a wave, or he's part of a wave that's uh, that's challenging some of these modern premises. Uh, I mean, I like the like the uh, as he says at the beginning of the chapter, the the primacy of reality over symbol that kind of duality you could say he's deconstructing in a in a kind of technical sense and so he's saying no well reality is in fact inherently symbolic uh and symbols have a, a substantive reality to them so he's he's undoing that dualism so I, I think that would be part of the part of the reason but um I think that what what Jim what Jim's work does is allow us to sort through, the different uh, different agendas and initiatives of what what's called postmodernism, uh, because he's I mean, Van Til again. This is a Van Til thing and a and a frame thing. 
they're also doing something that uh, resembles a kind of postmodern move, but they're all doing that on a on a strongly biblical foundation, uh, almost a fundamentalist um, commitment to the truth of the Bible, and uh, that's a means of able to sort through some of those uh, some of those cultural moves while acknowledging the the value and the importance of some of them, while also resisting others. And they're also not doing they're not making the historical reenactment move either. Jim talks about that at the end of the chapter about, uh, so if you're really uh, disenchanted uh, with modernism, the way to re-enchant the world is not to go back to the 16th century or the 17th century necessarily. You can learn from them, but uh, both Van Til Frame, Jim, Jim's book uh, is looking at the Bible in a fresh way standing on the shoulders of reformers and post-Reformation theologians, um, but also uh, drawing on the the work in biblical theology that's been done in the last 150, 100 years. I mean, this is one thing that a lot of Presbyterians don't appreciate. I mean, if they want to live in the world of the 17th century in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, and for example, in the chapter on the covenants, that that does not take into account the real advances that were made in understanding the Bible and the covenants in the Bible in the last hundred years or so. Um, and I think Jim does that in a way that's helpful and believable and fresh. He's not just going back um, to the 16th century or to the first three centuries of even though there's a great deal of interest in allegory and symbolism in the early church, it's not just a, uh, a retrieval. It's a retrieval with, with, new, with new eyes. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.